Good morning, everybody. Choice is such a wonderful thing that God gives to us, places it in our hands to say yes or to say no. This morning I have a rather curious title to my message. It's, it's this, the myth that more is enough. The myth that more is enough. I, I was reading a book that was given me, and that had a strange title as well. And the title of that was, uh, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. <laughs> the game of life included. And sometimes we play at life. And when the playing is done, it all goes back in the box. And I mention that because uh, uh, that's where I got the title for my message today. And uh, I'd just like to share that with you. The myth that more is enough. I watched a little bit of the Olympics. And I was thinking of, the, of Michael Phelps going for eight gold medals. One is not enough. Two is not enough. And seven is not enough. It's got to be eight. And when he gets eight, will that be enough? Will that be enough? I was reading about an old black and white movie named Key Largo. I never saw it. But uh, the story, as I understand it, is about a notorious gangster played by Edward G. Robinson, whose life is filled with violence and deceit. And he now holds an entire family hostage. And someone's asked him, what drives you to lead this kind of life? What is it that you want? And his face clouds over. He's not a very reflective man, and he doesn't know how to answer the question. And one of the hostages, played by Humphrey Bogart, suggests this answer. He said, I know what you want. You want more. And Robinson's face lightens, and he said, yeah, that's it. That's what I want. I want more. And this notorious gangster believes the myth of more. The myth that one day... More will be enough. That will be all that he wants. His soul will be satisfied. And if we believe that myth, we will spend our lives looking for the next thing. It may be a car. It may be a promotion. It may be the love of a beautiful woman or a handsome man. But we keep hoping that the next thing will be it. The source of satisfaction for our souls. And you know what? For a few days, maybe even just a few minutes, we experience a nice satisfaction. But then it wears off. It always wears off. But we always want more. And I suggest that even the most grateful person among us knows a little bit of the ache for more. A man by the name of Michael Drosnin wrote a book about a man whose name became synonymous, in my opinion, 
with the hunger for more. He wanted more wealth, so he built one of the greatest financial empires of his day. He wanted more pleasure, so he seduced or paid for the most glamorous women that money could buy. He wanted more adventure, so he set airspeed records and designed and built and piloted the world's most unique, yeah, somebody said it, aircraft. He wanted more power, so he acquired political clout that was the envy of the most envious senator. He wanted more glamour, so he crashed Hollywood, owned studios, and courted the stars. Now, Drosnin also tells us how this man's life ended when back in the box. But I want to quote this because I want to get it right. So this is a quote. Quote, he was a figure that could match the scariest horror movie. Emaciated, only 120 pounds, stretched over his six-foot-four-inch frame. He had a thin, scraggly beard that reached midway to his sunken chest. He had hideously long nails and grotesque corkscrews. Many of his teeth were black, rotting stumps. And then over his body, his entire body, innumerable needle marks. Howard Hughes was an addict, a billionaire junkie, close quotes. And here's the question. If Howard Hughes had pulled one more deal, made one more million, tasted one more thrill, would that have been enough? I rather doubt it. It was in the middle of the Great Depression. I had been born in a poor immigrant family, and here I was wanting more. And the more that I wanted at that time was a bicycle. And I found a way that I thought would get me one that would get me the more, the bicycle. I began to deliver milk for two cents a quart. I obtained a small paper route. It was small because few people bought newspapers in the Depression, and particularly in a small town. But I worked at it. And eventually, I accumulated my small fortune of about $12 and bought my dutiful bicycle. It was wonderful. I rode it here and there, and, and I liked to show it off to my friends. I must have been the happiest boy in the world. But then something happened. Two months had gone by, and the novelty of my long-for bicycle, the thrill of that bicycle, began to wear off. And the unthinkable happened. The bicycle no longer gave me long, gave me lasting satisfaction. I wanted more, and the more that I wanted this time was a 22 caliber rifle. More. I wanted more. Just give me more, and maybe, maybe I'll be satisfied. 
Suppose you knew a lady and you gave her your American Express card or Visa card or whatever that she could go to Nordstrom's for one day of unlimited shopping. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? And she would go into the shoe department and she bought every shoe that she liked and every matching purse for every occasion, every dress she admired, and every piece of jewelry her heart desired, would it be enough? Or would there be lurking around in her mind the need for more when the new spring fashions arrive? <laughs> and just suppose we were able to throw in a new Lamborghini with upholstery that matched her favorite accessories, because they do that. <laughs> and would that be enough? I rather think not. In a recent survey, 89% of the Americans who were polled said the United States is too materialistic. However, and very ironically, the same percentage of us still said we wanted more for ourselves. We don't want to be materialistic. All we want is just a little more. So what do the scriptures have to say about this addiction to more? There is a man spoken of in the Bible to whom I have given the title, the king of more. And if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. And we'll just read a short part of this. Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 4. And it says there, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. And then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I didn't refuse them. This man went window shopping, and he looked at all the windows and all the stuff that's in the windows. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Now, verse 11, 
verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity. And striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Wow. Wow. As someone said, we have an unscratchable itch. And the person further said, no one ever made an itch go away by getting better at scratching. It is very likely that no one got better at scratching than Solomon. Solomon threw such lavish parties that one day's, one day's food supply for the palace included 30 head of cattle, 100 sheep, 500 bushels of flour and corn, deer, gazelles, and exotic poultry. That's 1 Kings chapter 4. He constructed a palace so magnificent that it defies description. Solomon's home took a construction crew of 150,000 men 13 years to complete. Pretty nice house. Pretty nice house. Unfortunately, Solomon discovered at the end of it all was vanity. It was trying to grasp the wind. And he found out that he couldn't hold the wind in his hand. He liked music. And since there were no CDs back then, he collected an orchestra of of every known instrument, and he drafted all the finest singers in his day to serenade him at mealtime. He, accu he accumulated 1,000 wives and concubines. He was supposed to be the smartest guy in the world. <laughs> then he collects 1,000 wives. He indulged every appetite. He tried out achieving everyone. He earned more than 25 tons of gold every year. And then he says, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Why is it that nothing on this earth completely satisfies us? Why is that? Talk show host Dennis Prager, maybe some of you know that name, wrote about an ad he had read for a sex therapist in Los Angeles. And the ad said this, if you are not completely satisfied with your intimate life, give us a call. And as Dennis Prager continued to think about this ad, the more he was struck with the sheer brilliance of the ad, all because of two words, completely satisfied. Completely satisfied. Who is ever completely satisfied with anything? 
I want you to imagine a few ads. If you're not completely satisfied with your spouse, give us a call. If you're not completely satisfied with your job, give us a call. If you're not completely satisfied with your church, give us a call. If you're not completely satisfied with the presidential candidates of this year, give us a call. <laughs> We're completely satisfied with nothing. Nothing. Is it because we're too demanding? Should we just settle with what life gives and to keep ourselves, try to keep ourselves from wanting? Or maybe it's because we were made for something that earth does not offer. Something that earth does not offer. The lust for more. Now, social therapists have come up with a lot of fancy terms for this lust for more. And I want to mention four of these terms. First of all, we have abundance denial. This is where we take what used to be wants and have turned them into needs. We have made a way, made up a way of thinking where many people consider themselves deprived of a lot of stuff, because they, they deserve it. They should have more. And they make themselves so very, very unhappy by this lust for more. And the comparisons between 1970 and the year 2000 are very interesting, very, very telling. And I'd like to give you just a few examples of the things that were considered necessities in 1970 and compare them with the year 2000. In 1970, 20% of people thought a second car was a necessity. In the year 2000, it was 59%. In 1970, 3% of people thought a second TV was a necessity. In the year 2000, it was 45%. In 1970, 2% thought more than one phone was a necessity. In the year 2000, 78% thought it was a necessity. In 1970, 11% thought car air conditioning was a necessity. In the year 2000, it was 65%. And the list goes on and on. And then social therapists refer to what is called reference anxiety. And you have to... Uh, uh, define these terms. But more often this is referred to as keeping up with the Joneses. We don't ask if our homes or cars meet our needs. We ask if they are nicer than our neighbor's house. And people work like crazy to make that happen. What do you do when the Joneses refinance? Do you want a mortgage bigger than theirs because you want to outdo them? I wonder. And then we suffer from the, uh, the effects of entitlement. This means that my mind can convince itself that I deserve something, that, that somehow my rights are violated 
and I deserve more. Let me give you a couple of examples. The San Francisco Giants were sued for passing out Father's Day gifts to men only. You get that? They were sued for passing out Father's Day gifts to men only. And then there was the psychic who was awarded $986,000 when she alleged that the doctor's CAT scan had damaged her psychic abilities. <laughs> and it makes you wonder if she was really psychic. <laughs> she... Should she not have known not to go to that doctor? <laughs> wow. Interesting world we live in. Fourthly and lastly, we suffer from impaired judgment. And investors often talk about one of the strangest speculative booms in history. And this crazy boom happened in the 17th century. And the Dutch called it tulip mania. And the whole country hoarded tulips in the belief that their price would rise indefinitely. And at the peak of this boom, whole family fortunes were squandered on a single tulip bulb. And one rare bulb was given as full payment of a successful brewery. A shoemaker in The Hague was able to grow the rarest of tulip beauties, a black tulip. And he was visited by some, gro uh, some growers who bought his treasure for quite a lot of money. And they got the tulip. And they threw it through the ground and immediately crushed it under their, under their shoes. Stomped it to pieces. They're thinking they too had a black tulip. And they were determined to have the only one. They told the shoemaker they would have paid at least ten times more than what they gave him. And the story goes that this heartbroken cobbler is said to have died over this loss, perceived loss. When the price levels cracked, the entire economic life of Holland crumbled. The lawsuits were so numerous, the courts couldn't handle them. Well, is there an answer? So let's ask ourselves some questions. Again, the question, ever wonder why the myth of more is so strong? If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn again to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. And I'd like to read that. Again, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore... Consider the members of our earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And here's the part of the verse that I want you to notice. And greed, which amounts to idolatry. 
and idolatrous greed. Paul calls an excessive desire idolatry. We are not just physical stuff. We are spiritual beings. And someone said that our deepest hunger is spiritual, and we are now turning our greed into something which we worship. Idolatry. I. Howard Marshall writes that the rich fool in Jesus' day, Jesus' story, isn't merely covetous just because he wants a pleasant retirement. His foolishness is that he believes that the storage of grain solves the problem of his human existence. He worships at the shrine of the bulging barn. He's worshiping. And because we have this need, this innate need to worship something, somebody, we worship the myth of more. And I'd like for you to think of that story of Jesus and instead of grain, substitute a 401k there. We worship at a good, growing, prosperous 401k or a growing IRA. Last week I was, last week, two weeks ago, I was reading in the Contra Costa Times about this house owned by a woman in Los Angeles, of course, that had 56,000 square feet. A little house, you know. <laughs> Weekend retreat. And then again I read about the man who had a 38,000 square foot home. As the Wall Street Journal put it, these homes scream, my house is bigger than your house. They're called McMansions. And one building official says, we sell what nobody needs. However, the problem with the human heart is that we need what nobody sells. The question is, what is our desire for more telling us? Is it telling us that there is something truly important? Maybe our unsatisfied desires are telling us that we need to listen to something here now. If we are not completely satisfied with all this world has to offer, perhaps we were made for something quite different. Can a person made in the image of God ever be satisfied with the stuff of this world? Is it possible that our hunger could be sharpened for the better when we think of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciple, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Can you imagine God's will in Alamo just like the will of God in heaven? I'll take my town too, Moraga. 
Is the will of God being done in that town just like the will of God in heaven? I trust that that sharpens our thinking. What a wonderful promise by Jesus when he said, but seek first. Here's a priority. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The things that we lust after, that we crave, will be not just all of those, but the necessities of life will be added to us when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Are we at all like the Samaritan woman who was told by Jesus that everyone who drank of the well that she had come to every day, he told her, you know, you're going to thirst again. You're going to thirst again. It's not going to quench your thirst. Was he telling her that the wells of this world do not, do not, satisfy. And what a wonderful promise by Jesus when he said to her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. Wow. That's satisfaction, folks. Never, never thirst again. Wow. I think that is one of the most significant stories in the New Testament. It tells us what we are going after, and what we are going after doesn't satisfy. It's only when Jesus comes into our life and gives us the water that he has in abundance. As a matter of fact, what is so wonderful about that story is he not just gives us a little tin cup of water to drink, and uh, he puts the well inside of us. He puts the well there. And see, that's, that's, isn't that wonderful? Thank you, Father. Someone said that materialism is God's main rival. And if a person's wallet is a person's wallet, really the temple of the 21st century. Many people in our day believe that their ability to experience happiness is directly related to the contents of the little leather container called a wallet. This is where the god Mammon lives. And we give this little piece of leather the power to make us feel, feel secure, successful, and valuable. Contentment, contentment does not come when we acquire enough. And I'd like to recap as we close. And I'd like for you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. Paul says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned 
to be content in whatever circumstances I am, even if that circumstance is a Roman prison. I've learned to be content. I've learned to be satisfied. I've learned that I have enough in the Christ who died for me and loves me. I've learned to be content. Now look at the next verse, verse 12. I love that verse. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. Now listen to this. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering. There are two little parts of each verse that I want to just uh, focus on for just a few moments. Verse 11, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. In verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. And I want to stress the word learned because contentment just doesn't happen. It's not like you're walking down the street one day and all of a sudden you're showered with contentment. It doesn't work that way. What did Paul learn and how do we learn? One, we learn by practicing, obeying, trust and obey, the song that you had us sing. We learn by practicing and obeying God's principles, which leads to God's peace. And when we have God's peace, can contentment be far behind? I don't think so. We learn by practicing what the scriptures teach us. As a top priority, and I mentioned this before, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And I want to add one more verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul says, of first importance, that's what he calls it in my translation, of first importance, the gospel, namely, that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's what the Bible calls of first importance. That's first importance. And that means for us here, it's of first importance. There is no greater first importance. We learn by drinking of the water that Jesus gives. We trust him and discover that he puts inside the believer the well of water, the well that never runs dry. Israel discovered cisterns that had cracks that lost the water that was in them. They had these open cisterns, and when it rained, it would fill up. It didn't stay filled up because of the crack. They were broken cisterns. And there's a song that speaks of those, and then it says, and the waters failed. 
We learn by standing firm in the Lord. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. We learn by discovering the God of adequate resources. And I want you to listen to this verse from Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And it's here that we discover the God of adequate resources. Have you discovered the God of adequate resources? We learn that it's God's strength that carries us safely through each circumstance of life. I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. We learn that it is God's strength that carries us safely through every circumstance of life. One last word. This week, this week, when you encounter that little voice inside of you that is pushing you to want more, remember the God of adequate resources who himself has more than enough to put your heart at rest and to let you be content. And may the Lord bless you all with his peace. And if you haven't yet discovered the God of adequate resources, if you have not yet responded to that which is of first importance, let me urge you today. Today's the day. Today's the day when our Lord wants to bless you. Not next week, today, this morning, this afternoon, in this room. Let's pray together. Father, we sometimes think more and more about Jesus, would I know? And Father, we certainly do want to know more of you. And Lord, we want to understand more fully and believe that you are the God of adequate resources. And we do live in a world that has a lust for more. The more that is never enough, the more that never completely satisfies. Father, we do pray that out of our own personal satisfaction that you have given us. We trust that we might be those who are willing to share with others that which truly satisfies. Bless this congregation of your people. And Father, we pray again for someone here who may not know you yet as that God of adequate resources. And we trust you, Father, that you would by your Holy Spirit, speak to that individual or more than one. And so, Father, we just commit our day to you. Thank you for the privilege of gathering together. And, Lord, we just say thank you in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.